Another announcement, as I did last week, uh, we are starting a midweek gathering. Just a little bit of our theory on uh, the spaces where we hang out together. We have gospel communities that meet in homes that are led by leaders, and we have sermon discussion. And the real focus of those is on community and, uh, and growing together. We also uh, periodically have midweek gatherings here at the church where the focus is on uh, teaching and explanation. It still has a community component. We still are together. Um, but we are starting one this week. Uh, you should have a little insert in your bulletin. We are not our own. I'm not nervous about it at all. Um, You'll see there that there's, um, there's some real zingers um, written on, on your flyer there, and this is something that we've wanted to address for a long time. And um, just, just a preview, uh, it's going to be very straightforward, I hope very robust, myself and Rob uh, Witham, Elder, who's also leading worship for us this morning, uh, are going to be leading uh, this class. And, um, you know, we're going to be straightforwardly looking at the scriptures when we ask these questions and also looking at our hearts and how we engage with people and, and uh, putting love uh, first and yet also seeing the scriptures. And so uh, we hope it's a straightforward thing, although when we come to anything like this, it's going to be some, a lot of complexity and a lot of stories wrapped up in um, our lives as bodies, as we imbo- have an embodied existence. And so we have friends, we have struggles ourselves, we have uh, a context that we're coming from, we have different political opinions, and, uh, and yet what I've been amazed at, whenever we've opened up a space like this, this church has had such great unity and such a uh, beautiful character to it, and so we're praying for that unity to continue while also addressing things that we feel like uh, we, we should as a church. And so I hope that you'll sign up for that. Uh, please note, if you're wanting childcare for this, today is the last day to sign up for that. Uh, we are, it's, it's kind of like we can't prepare for every scenario. So if you have uh, children that, and you're definitely planning on coming and you're going to want your kids in, in a classroom, and you're definitely going to want your kids in the classroom if you're coming here. This is, I mean, it's not going to be too explicit or anything, but this, there may be PG-13 style conversations going on in here. And so we are going to have kids ministry, but we want to make sure that we have enough volunteers and, um, and folks to watch your kids. So make sure you sign up for that today if you can. We're going to continue in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be reading uh, chapter 9, verses 13, through the end of chapter 10, a longer section uh, than we normally tackle, but there is a, there's a unity to this section that will emerge as we read it, uh, as we talk about it this morning, I hope, uh, because it seems pretty random. As we have seen in a number of uh, passages in Ecclesiastes, there can be a, a feeling that this is kind of just Solomon pulling from all over the place, but... I come to the Scriptures with the conviction that um, if we spend enough time in, in the passages that confuse us, we actually we grow in, in seeing things that we don't see before. And that has certainly been my experience reading this passage over and over and over again as, as the, kind of the backbone of it that Solomon is, is drawing our attention to emerges. I, I think that happens a lot, and yet we're often so quick to read through Scripture too fast and not slow down and see what's really there. So I want to read this for us, and we're going to read the whole thing, uh, chapter 9, verse 13, through the end of chapter 10. Let's read together. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. 
Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise heard and quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in, low, in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth will win him favor, win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it is what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. This is the word of the Lord. Several years ago, um, we, when we had our first dog, Jules, I would take uh, Jules out on a walk uh, most mornings, and we went kind of on a predictable path, and walking through the neighborhood, I always would pass by this little tiny house that was in disrepair. Uh, I don't live in a neighborhood that has an HOA, right? So there's lots of variety in my neighborhood. And so I'm walking by this house, and it's in disrepair. It really needed a paint job. And uh, one morning, I, I walked by it, and presumably the owner or the renter, whoever is there, um, they had started to paint it. Uh, so they began the job painting it. They chose a very bright lime green color, uh, and they started at one corner of the house, and they started painting very slowly. <laughs> so for not days, not weeks, not months, but years, uh, as I would go on this predictable path around the neighborhood, I would see just a little bit more of that house painted in this lime green uh, color. Some mornings the, the man would even be out there uh, just with a paint can in his hand, and I don't know what his goal was, like 10 brush strokes a day or you know, something like that, but he was very slowly inching his way across the house. At one point, probably months and months in, he stopped painting from right to left, 
and he chose a different color and he started painting the trim all around the house. So around the windows uh, was a darker green color and uh, the house was the lime green color, but not all the trim was done and not all the house was done. Months go by, years go by, and um, I see at one point when I'm walking the dog that he started again on the, on the lime green side that he's already started, but with a different color. <laughs> Starting the inches way back, the, now, now the house has three different colors on it, and none of them are finished. Like I said, not days, not weeks, not months, several years this process is going on. And I was just thinking about who that person was and what their intentions were, you know. Uh, I'm sure that they had good intentions to paint their house. But even with the good intention, without, with, the, with, the, with the work, there was a lack of wisdom that made it worse than before. You know, as we often say, what's the, what's the road to hell paved with, right? It's, uh, it's good intentions, right? We have these intentions, and yet things get off track. And what we've just witnessed with these 25 verses that we just read from Solomon is him expanding his project here is that he's telling us examples where someone intends to do something, but they end up showing some kind of lack of wisdom, and they end up messing up the whole thing. And it's actually what he uses to picture sin for us, because this is the way that sin works, how it spreads in the world. A little bit of something that, that has gone wrong ends up destroying much. The, the central metaphor here is in chapter 10, verse 1, where he says, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So, a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. The fly and the ointment, this costly perfume, this costly ointment is ruined by one dead fly. So, you can have every intention, you can have every good endeavor that you can put your mind to, but a little bit of folly, he says, outweighs that wisdom and honor. There's something good and then something small comes and messes it up. And this is really the heart of what he's telling us in these verses, really around two main themes. There's two different themes that he draws out here that are both pictures of flies and the ointment. He says where we see this, this principle work out the most is in our words and in our work. In our words and in our work. First, he says, in our words. He has this uh, story for us in verses 13 through 17. I've seen an example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little cry, a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was founded in a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. So this is the story. There's a wise man, but he's poor in the city. And a king you know, lays his siege works against the city, Seemingly, it's going to destroy it, and yet this wise, poor man saves the day with his words. How does he save the city with his words? We don't know. Perhaps it was, he's a good motivational speaker. Maybe, maybe he motivated them at the right moment to say, like, let's, you know, let's fight these. You know, he's just like he gave the motivational speech, and those words that push a little harder made them win the city. 
Or maybe it was some kind of strategy that he gave. It's like, why don't we set up our troops over here? Whatever it is, it was communicated with some words and the city was saved. What a, what a beautiful picture of perfume, the ointment in the world where someone who is wise is listened to and he saves the day. But even though in, this, in theory this quiet wisdom wins the day, this great ointment is a beautiful, sweet-smelling perfume in the world. There are flies in it. He's saying, let's say that did happen in this fictional story that Solomon's telling us. Let's say it did happen. The, 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 the poor man's not going to be remembered. That's not how, typically how it works. He's going to be lost to time. So nobody's going to remember that it was his wisdom. So nobody's going to go back to him the second time around. More than that, it's probably not going to be listened to in the first place. This is a story that Solomon is making up, saying, asking you to think about this. But here's what usually happens. Not that poor man is, it's not that the poor man is listened to. It's that the person who is loudest or most frantic is heard the most. And how often is that the case? Just ask yourself, how often is our culture full of loud noises, full of the frantic person, the squeakiest wheel getting the most attention, rather than the wise and unassuming person? And words are that powerful example of something that can be so good if it was just listened to. But it's not going to be listened to in a world that values volume over wisdom. It's not just the person who shouts the loudest, it's also the one who talks the most, Solomon says. Continuing in this theme, turn to verse 12 of the passage, we have another example. The words of a wise man win him favor. What a beautiful ointment. The wise man who has words that win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is madness. A fool multiplies words though no man knows what it is to be and who can tell him what will be after him the toil of a fool wearies him for he does not know the way to the city this wisdom that is the the beautiful ointment of of of, of wisdom with words is destroyed by the flies of the multiplication of words whoever talks the most usually wins the day. Flies in the ointment. A fool is consumed by his lips. He keeps talking even when he doesn't know what he's saying. Madness seeps in. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know the way to the city. He's a lost person, and yet he keeps talking. Do we know anything about this? <laughs> Don't we follow those who multiply words? Don't we think... Perhaps I'm the one who needs to speak first so I can set the tone for the conversation. Don't we listen to people speak, maybe politicians, when they debate in our public forums, they're debating and they're, they're multiplying words, right? That buzzer comes in, your, your a lot of time is over. But they keep talking past the buzzer because the multiplication of the words, well, maybe that will persuade. So it's not about wisdom, it's about how much we can say and how loud it is we can say it. Words, finally, Solomon says, if you jump all the way to the end of the passage, follow this thread all the way to the end, he says it, our words can have an outsized impact on our lives. Look at verse 20. 
Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. Words spoken rashly um, have a way of manifesting in the world, don't they? They can have an outsized impact. You can have one stray thought. You can just say one thing about someone, and somehow that's the one thing that gets communicated to them. You curse someone that you should respect, maybe your boss, and it doesn't matter that you spent the last few years working your way up in the company, and you spent all this time, and you were very careful, but you you slip at the water cooler one time, and you say one negative thing, and then he walks right behind you. This is the way that it happens. Sometimes it's even read in our face, right? The what we're actually thinking, and therefore it gets manifested. The words that are in our heads get manifested to the person in front of us. This is what Solomon is talking about. Look, it doesn't matter if we try to conceal it. Words have a way of getting out. Our thoughts even have a way of getting out to people. The point is, the, the one thing that you didn't want to be communicated will somehow be communicated. You may be otherwise very respectful, but your boss, he or she, hears this one word. Your friend, you wound them, even though you've been faithful to them for years, perhaps. Maybe you've always been there for them, but you slip up one time, and your words can destroy that friendship. This is, this is how it works. This is the fly in the ointment. It's just, it just takes one word sometimes to ruin a person or a situation or a job. This is how powerful evil is. This is the nature of evil. It it seeps into things, and one thing can ruin something good. One bit of folly can outweigh the wisdom of years. It's discouraging. One fly in the ointment. That's the theme of the words throughout the passage. There's another theme that Solomon's developing. We see the futility of our of our desires and intentions to do good and yet being messed up by one small thing in our work as well. Work from the book of Ecclesiastes is a good thing. We just saw last week, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. To, to work and do something good, to manifest something really good in the world is a good thing. But we've already seen. It doesn't always lead to success. The, the, the race doesn't always go to the swift the, uh, the, the riches don't always go to the wise and the brave. So it doesn't always end that way. And in fact, he pictures here a kind of uh, social reversal in verse 5 where he, of chapter 10. He says, There is an evil I've seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He's picturing a society that's been turned upside down. This is what happens. Further development, further down, he says, look, woe to you, O land, this is verse 16, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happier are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time. See, our work from the top down to the bottom can get reversed over time. There is a degeneration of work. 
And it can start at the very top. The princes, the rulers, if they somehow get off base, if they're not diligent, then that, that can trickle down to all the people not having a diligence. And your society can go sideways just by that, by, by just a little symbol. Like, hey, your princes feast in the morning, but now suddenly that becomes a picture of how the land is backwards. Not only that, there's dangers in work. There's small dangers that sometimes outweigh the cost or the value of doing the work itself. Look at verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. These professions, these work, um, areas of work that, that Solomon highlights here, presumably these are very skilled people. They're good at what they do. What are the chances that a pit digger will fall into a pit? What's, what are the chances that a snake charmer will be bitten by the snake that he is charming? Or that someone who's chopping a log will get hit by a piece of wood or will get an axe to the foot? The chances are small in any given blow, any given day. But over time, they multiply, and it's just the one thing that can go wrong. That's what he's saying. I mean, what does it matter if you swing an axe 100,000 times right if one time you swing it wrong and you hurt yourself? One fly in the ointment. One thing that can go wrong in our work can destroy us. It can have an outsized impact. Solomon says, be careful of the fly and the ointment. I grew up watching a show um, of, of Steve Irwin. I know some of you from my generation will know who Steve Irwin is. He is the crocodile hunter. And the crocodile hunter, would, he's this Australian guy for the younger generation here who, uh, who would go and do these amazing, dangerous things. He would hunt crocodiles. He would, you know, go out and, and be with hippos in the water while they're, you know, playing and fighting with one another. I saw one episode of, of his show um, where he's, he's holding a snake, and he's talking about the snake, and the snake just rears back its head and bites him right in the neck. And you're watching this, and he's like, we better go to commercial break. I can't remember how poisonous this snake is. You know? So like, they go to commercial break and he comes back. And he's like, I should probably lay low, but you know, I'm, I think I'm going to survive. Like, why are you holding the snake? Dude? You're like, that thing can kill you. has the possibility to. Over and over and over again, he escapes, he escapes, he escapes. Some of you know the sad ending of his life. 2006, he was stung by a stingray while shooting a TV show in the ocean, and he died. What is the benefit to the snake charmer if the one time he doesn't charm the snake? If the one time he fails to do what he is already good at? Work is dangerous, and it degenerates over time. Work goes downhill. He pictures for us what can happen to a society or to people when our work is no longer good. Look at verse 18. Through sloth, 
the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. This is what can happen. Here he begins with the flies, right? The indolence. The roof sinks in. Over time, the house leaks. Things fall apart, in other words. And he says what we need back again in those situations is more bread, more wine, and more money. These things are made for our provision, but a little bit of indolence, just a little bit, can actually have a chain reaction where those things are no longer important. And by the way, don't get thrown off by Solomon saying money answers everything. He's not saying there's some kind of philosophical statement about life. Uh, Literally, the phrase there says, silver answers all. Silver answers all. What he means by that is silver gets, gets you what you need. You know, you can think about it like this. Um, if, if you have a child that says, uh, hey, Dad, I need $20 for a field trip, and you, you give them the $20 and you say, do you need anything else? And then the child gets all philosophical, you know, and they say, well, I have many needs. I, I need, you know, shelter and affection and provision in life. And it's like, okay, that's not what I was saying, right? I was saying, do you need anything with reference to this field trip? That's kind of what, what Solomon's doing here, so don't get confused. He's saying, he's not saying that money answers everything in life on a philosophical level. He's saying bread gives you, generally speaking, bread gives you laughter and wine gladdens the heart and money provides for you. And yet, so all these good things, all these ointments that God has given us can get a fly of indolence, of laziness, and can be unwound. I just mentioned that as an aside because sometimes people use verses like that to say, you know, the Scriptures contradict themselves or something like that. Like, you know, money is the root of all evil, and yet Solomon says money answers everything. There must be a contradiction in the Scriptures. No, it's just, it's just a manner of speaking that, Paul, that Solomon is doing here. This happens over and over again. Solomon's point is, though there are good things, they fall apart, and usually the tipping point is small. The fly in the ointment. What you need to see is that this is the way that the whole world works. Think about it. Everything is just a fly in the ointment from Genesis 1 through Genesis 3 on. God created something good, He made something amazing. This earth, beautiful, sweet smelling ointment, and sin came in like a fly into the ointment and brought just a little death. And it spread and it destroyed what was good. This is what happens. And some would say, Adam and Eve, when they took the fruit, they introduced the fly into the ointment, so to speak. Some would say, well, how petty of God. How petty of Him to say like just one little test and they failed and now we have death and destruction everywhere. I've heard non-Christians make this argument many times. But the thing is, you don't understand how evil works. The power of one dead thing. One small dead creature can drive everyone out of a house. One bad apple can bruise the whole bushel. One dead fly can ruin a valuable ointment. And one act of rebellion against a mighty God, a holy God, can bring death into, can introduce death into this world. 
It is the nature of evil to destroy. And eventually, that spreads like the fly through the ointment into everything. And that is the world that we live in. That is the world that we live in. Which is easier, to build something or to destroy it? Of course, to destroy it. God, in His infant wisdom, builds this earth. He takes the materials of His own spoken Word. He crafts it. He gives it beauty and, and, and over time. And He crafts something beautiful. And one thing seeks to destroy what He has made that is good. Which is easier, to build a vase or to break it? To build it takes time and energy and craft. To break it is one touch. To push it off the edge. And so I want to acknowledge something. This is, this is the world that we live in. And it's hard to do things well. We live in a world that constantly throws flies in our ointment. And some of you are trying to do good work. You're trying to work hard at your job. You're trying to accomplish something successful. You're trying to build a relationship with someone who's hard to build a relationship. You're, you're trying to love your spouse well, even though it's hard for whatever reason. You're trying to love your children well, even though they are hard to deal with. And the feeling is two steps forward, three steps back. And that just needs to be acknowledged. The world that we live in right now is a world that gets thrown off by the fly in the ointment. And that death has spread into everything. The question is not, how could this have happened? I think it's obvious to us how it could happen. If one dead thing can spread, then it's obvious how we've gotten to the place where we are. The question is, rather, how can it be reversed? Is it possible for the ointment to be made good again? Once death enters a good creation, does it just inevitably get worse? There's been a reversal of what's good. We saw that in verse 5-7. through seven. An evil that I've seen under the sun. It's this ruler. Folly is set in high places, but the rich sit in low. Slaves are on horses and Princes are on the ground. There's been a reversal of the created order. The only way to reverse the fly in the ointment is to reverse the reversal. It is to bring life and to destroy death. Folly, which should be on the ground, is elevated. And princes who should be on horses are acting like slaves. That's a reversal. But the only way to reverse the reversal is if a prince willingly reversed it. And he became a slave. He became a servant. If the one who was rich beyond all splendor that we sing at Christmas time, thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became poor, if the one who was rich willingly made himself poor, then perhaps this could be reversed. That is, in fact, what the Scriptures tell us. 
The reversal that sin brought, as we see in the unfolding of the Scriptures, is itself reversed. And the death that enters the world is itself killed. That's the promise. And it happens in Jesus Christ. He is the prince who willingly became a slave. He is the rich one who willingly became poor so that he could reverse the things that we had had brought wrong into the world. He was the only one who remained a fragrant offering to the Lord. The only ointment that was not perverted and destroyed by the fly. And he laid down his life willingly so that death itself would die. And there's a promise here that this reversal will happen over time and in God's good timing. Eventually, there will be no more flies. No more death. Because the great promise is that death itself will die. And with it will die its power to contaminate the good. This is the promise that Scripture gives us in the unfolding good news of the story of Jesus. And just uh, a few weeks ago, I was doing a walk around the neighborhood with my current dog. The other one has died years ago. And I passed by that same house again the half-finished house of good intentions, (laughs) and it was fully painted. I don't know when it happened. Uh, I guess I had changed my my route, and I I came by the house, and it was completed. The trim was painted. uh, The the sides were painted. And again, it still wouldn't be the colors that I would have chosen, but it was done with a professional hand. I don't know when that happened. I don't know if the house was sold Someone else bought it. I don't know if the person who was living there thought, yeah, you know, our good intentions are not good enough, right? But regardless, the harm that had been caused by all the good intentions but the lack of wisdom had been covered over, had been reversed because someone with wisdom had made it so. Left to ourselves, our good intentions are never enough There is always a fly in the ointment. There's always death. There's always a way that sin could come and destroy anything good that we could create. Anything good that we would endeavor to do. Any relationship that seems so great and perfect, it all can be ruined by one thing. That's the world that we live in. But if we have trusted in Christ, then we believe a different story that this this narrative has been changed that the reversal has itself been reversed. And the promise is that Christ will restore all things and no flies will ruin it. In fact, we will continue to be more and more the aroma of Christ because He has redeemed what is good. Let's pray.